Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Greg, I am do- doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Starting the spooky season here today, celebrating <laughs> Halloween. Indeed, indeed. What's new with you? How, how have things been going? Uh, things are going well. Busy as usual. Um, for those that don't know, we've been in- incorporating Trula into a lot of our processes. That That's a feature podcast. We're excited to talk about kind of pharmacy procurement and our enhanced analytics that came on board with Trula. So that's exciting, but I, I don't want to do any spoilers. So that, that's going to come on a future podcast just as a, yeah. I guess we like to give people a heads up what's, what's coming for the rest of the year. Yeah, I'm sure folks have seen some press releases, but we'll get the the Trula team here on the podcast and really talk about the the benefits of that software. So looking forward to having that conversation. Lots of HRSA audits uh, this past month. So we're kind of in the start of the first fiscal year of uh, HRSA's federal fiscal year. So Q1 audits are underway right now. I know we've supported a handful or so audits this uh this first quarter so um, i think we've got eight or nine I have to double check um eight or nine hearse audits for our clients yeah for um with our q4 but hearse is q1 this fourth quarter yeah uh, so yeah. so it's yeah they're starting off with a with a bang i guess yeah and it's uh, timely for us to be talking about hearse audit readiness when we um get into the podcast episode in a few minutes here we're going to have a, a couple of guests who i'll introduce shortly and um this kind of dovetails along a, a really uh, informative webinar that uh, Jennifer Hagen and Chelsea Violet from our team put on earlier in October around HRSA audit preparation, the data request list. So um, lots of focus around HRSA audits as always in the 340B world right now. Absolutely. And, and I kind of feel like I got to do a shout out for Chelsea Violet and for J- Jennifer Hagen as well for the awesome webinar they did. But Chelsea Violet, for those that don't know, I got to give some credit. You know, it's it's today's our Halloween episode talking about uh, HRSA audit and compliance and uh, and 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 we probably need to give credit, but uh, our our uh, intro there was from Chelsea Violet. That's our very own Chelsea Violet, our pharmacy operation, our um, optimization director, and she's over our staff augmentation and and variety of services. So just appreciate her um, getting in full character for us today. Yeah. Excellent. Well, before we get into this week's episode, um, maybe news and noteworthy items in the 340B space. There's been some developments in the reinstatement of uh, Medicare Part B payment rates by CMS. You want to chat a little bit about that before we talk about HERS audits? Yeah, I, you know, honestly, a lot of calls I have with um, kind of our clients and, and pharmacy leadership. This is a hot topic because, uh, yeah, it's um, exciting, right? For a while yeah. after SCOTUS, I was like, okay, w- when is something going to happen? You know, all we really had was um, CMS saying, well, we're intending to not to, to pay ASP plus 6% starting in 2023. And we're like, but w- what about right now? And and of course, then we had the um, the D.C. Federal District Court um, rule that, hey, on September 28th, that um, CMS, you, you kind of need to stop now, right? You need yeah. to stop reducing payments now. And so although we didn't really hear about it to early October, but uh, CMS's intent is that as of September 28th, 2022, so back to the day that the D.C. District Court um, came out with that statement, um, they're intending to play, pay ASP plus 6%. 
Yep. And uh, and then of course through through various news outlets and information, we're also learning that um, for all of 2022, um, the Medicare administrative um, contractors, which were referred to as Max, are intending to actually repay covered entities for all of 2022. So everything prior to September 28, 2022. But um, Greg, as I read it, and I'm just getting your take on it, it does feel like that it might be a little Mac dependent. So depending who your Medicare administrative contractor is, the process might be a little different. Some might be automatically redoing all the payments. Some might be doing something different. Kind of what's your take on that? Yeah, I think it, it really does depend on the regional MAC that covers your um, Medicare reimbursement. So even though CMS published a bulletin on their newsletter page on October 13th, stating that they were going to be working with MAC, um, you know, the, their their MAC organizations to reprocess claims that were paid on or after September 28th. You know, I, I think everybody needs to go back and, and look at who their regional MAC is and and look for, uh, you know, clear instructions on how to proceed with um, either billing or claim resubmission to reinstate the uh, the ASP plus six percent uh, reimbursement rate. So, um, not clear cut and dry, I guess, is common with a lot of <laughs> things in the 340B world. But um, you know, if you're uh, a covered entity that's expecting some, you know, some some increase in in reimbursement or impacted by this this new change. You know, I think the the source of truth for you is going to be your your regional MAC. Yeah, and and you know, one thing I read, you know, although some of it might be automated, right? They're going to go back and reprocess claims for all of 2022 uh, prior to the September 28th because that that should just change moving forward. I did see that at least one MAC had um, stated that um, the covered entities may have to resubmit claims processed prior to September 28th to receive full payment. And so that's a bit tricky. And, and I, I seriously doubt we have Mac um, staff listening to our podcast, but just in case there are, man, let's, if we can make it easier for covered entities, you know, at least, or, you know, and talk to the Macs, can, can we do it in an automated fashion to resubmit all of your outpatient claims for a hospital prior to September 28th yeah. for the whole year? That's, that's a lot of work. Lift. Yeah. That's a pretty big lift. lift. So hopefully that's not the case. And they'll come around to what the other Macs are doing and kind of just looking at it and just, you know, they've got the data that they can, um, reassess and reevaluate and then reissue the difference from the ASP plus six to ASP minus 22 and a half. So that, that's yeah. our hope and our ask. Not, not, that, not that we have the, possibly the right audience here, but, but why not ask just in case? Sure. Doesn't hurt to ask. So two other questions I want to ask you um, related to this. So the first is 2023. So what are our expectations or what do we foresee, you know, coming out with OPPS rules, hopefully published in November. What do you, what do you think the outlook is for, for 2023? What do we know so far? Well, well, so what we know is that HRSA or CMS has as at least stated the intent to go to ASP plus 6%. I personally thought it was a done deal. I think a lot of people did. Yeah. And of course, now we do realize, hey, the actual final or, or final Medicare outpatient, the OPPS rule comes out in November. So it's one of those things that's like, okay, we, we've, we've heard verbally from CMS that, that their intent is to go back to ASP plus 6%, but, but we want to wait to, it's almost like a contract, right? Until you get the signed contract, I'm not yeah. going to call that done. So, so we'll have to wait for that November final OPPS rule. Hopefully it will state just like they intended ASP plus 6%, even for the status indicator K drugs. The second component I think we're all interested in is do we still have to do modifiers, right? And in, in, yep. for this year and, and even listen to 340B Health, um, and on reading other information, there's been nothing said about modifiers. So just for everybody, just one reminder, recommendation, continue to add modifiers until we see, you know, if um, if CMS's OPPS rule states modifiers aren't needed. So we really need CMS to say something about the modifiers. And they've been 
interestingly silent on that. So, so I think yeah. that's what we're waiting for in that final November um, rule is if there's any information on modifiers and confirmation it's ASP plus 6%. So a couple of things yeah. that we're hopefully looking for. Yeah, and you wonder if, you know, continued use of the modifiers is going to be a mechanism for CMS to identify claims that may, may need to be paid out on a higher rate to make up the difference from, you know, previous reductions going back 2018. So we've, have we heard any anything from CMS or do we have any thought on how covered entities that have been impacted going back 2018, how they're going to recoup some of that lost revenue? Not yet. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's the other one, right? And maybe it's one of those where there's a hole in the boat. They've got to plug the hole first and that's solving the current problem. So it doesn't continue. It seems like they're well on their way for that. Making sure they take care of 2023. So again, making sure no more holes. And then it's, what do we do with all the water in the boat? Right. So, so that means we have 2018 through 2021, right? That's 2020. I got to do my math on my fingers. That's four years. um, I think if I got that right. Uh, So correct me if I'm wrong, but four years of repayment. And so far, we haven't heard anything on that. So I think that'll be coming next once they take care of the current, you know, uh, real time um, dealing with how payment's going to occur. Then hopefully they get back to, what do we do those four years? And I think for us, it's really just um, kind of just reading between the lines, reading the tea leaves, if you will, and thinking, okay, we, we know that the hospitals received some of that payment back <clears throat> as a redistribution of the of the funds. And I kind of get a feeling they're going to net that out. That, that would make sense to me. I would think that'd be fair. You receive some of those funds. Um, we're going to net out what you should have had compared to what you did get. Um, and there would be this net value coming back to the covered entities that were affected. Um, I'm hoping for the non-qualified hospitals or the hospitals that aren't affected, like critical ac- well, critical access gets paid differently, but uh, maybe still community hospitals that are rural plus the um, non-qualified hospitals that they don't try and take that money back yeah. in some mutual way. Because because right now healthcare is in a bad shape. I personally I feel just talking health systems are running in the red more than they ever have. Really at risk of some financial difficult um, situations with layoffs and everything else that we're seeing. Yeah. And so I'm hoping they don't take it away from the other hospitals um, that that maybe didn't get the reduced payments or, you know, that, that received that extra dollars, because I think that creates some financial hardship. So waiting to see how that occurs, I'm hoping they just do it through, you know, a payback and, you know, getting some budget to cover this cost, but we'll have to see, cause that, that's a tough one. I think that's why that's also taking so long. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly bring that topic back here for discussion. If we get more clarity r- around what's going to happen with 2023 OPPS roles and any, you know, action items that covered entities are going to need to take to work with CMS to, to reinstate some of that lost, lost revenue from, from the last four years. Yeah. And, and one last little piece that, that I read, you know, I love 340B Health because I, I love that they're, you know, we're just like, Hey, we just want the money back and 340B Health's like, yeah, wait a minute. But that was four years of interest-free loans we gave the yeah. government then, if that's the case. So can we get some interest on that? So I love the idea. Or the penalty hey, there's some payback. Yeah. Hey, what about interest, right? Yeah, almost like a penalty. But hey, we, we lost out on that. So um, lo- love the idea. At least creates a little bit more bargaining chips for the covered entities. Uh, but yeah, hot topic. Can't wait to see because yeah, I think this will come at a really good time if they can refund some of that money in 2023, really helping hospitals out. Um, financially, um, especially ones that are still trying to recover from COVID and everything else. Yeah, and, and contract and, pharmacy restrictions and all that. So. Gosh, that and then staffing costs have increased, right? We're seeing that inflation across the board, not just in regular consumer goods, but healthcare inflation's pretty dang high too. Um, yeah. It's a really, really scary place where I think the hospitals are from, you know, if you look at expenses to revenue um, there, it's it's tightened up for for our health system. Yeah. Well, I guess this wasn't planned, but maybe that's, you know, we need a, a plug for our you know, spend pharmacy services that that really focus on trying to maximize your 340B 
program participation. So reach out if, if you know, if you want some, some guidance or want to talk about how we might be able to help you kind of really, you know, optimize the, the way that your 340B program is working in this current climate. Sounds good. Okay. Well, we better get to our, um, our podcast. We got some great guests today. Uh, Greg, yeah, I, we do have, we do have some guests before we get into the guests. Just want to ask you a question about HRSA audit experience. What, what's your earliest HRSA audit experience working in 340B space? My earliest, I would have been back down in 2012, I think, when I was okay. still with Intermountain Healthcare. Yeah. So that's pre pre Bizel. So that's that's where oh, I'm yeah. directly with Ursa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Audit. Division of Financial Integrity Auditors. They're regional auditors. The ones we had were out, either out of California or uh, Colorado. So yeah. Yeah. Well, lots lots have changed in the Ursa audit process since then. We're going to be talking about the Ursa audit experience, more recent experience. We've got a couple of guests that are going to join us. The first is Heidi Larson. She's one of the directors of compliance at Spendben Pharmacy, a good uh, friend of ours and, and colleague. Um, she'd be upset with me if I didn't also mention in her bio that she used to be a hair model. She always likes to <laughs> sneak that in whenever she's giving an introduction. How did I yeah. not know that? You didn't know that? No. Yes. So, so, but back when I was on the provider side, turnkey previously, Spendman previously turnkey audited us. Heidi was one of the auditors at one of our facilities. And during the icebreaker session where we we're just kind of going around the room, Heidi was one of the first things that, that she mentioned about herself, not her pharmacy experience or her 340B experience, but the fact that back in college, she used to uh, make, you know, money on the side being a hair model. So, Okay. Okay. Yeah. I learn something every day. Every day I learn something new. <laughs> so uh, Heidi Larson from Spendman is going to join us. And we also have another Heidi. So not that confusing, but we've got Heidi, Heidi Haldeman. She is the uh, corporate pharmacy compliance coordinator from uh, the Ohio Health Health System in Ohio. She manages, uh, I think they've got eight different 340B covered entities. And her and Heidi Larson have worked closely together, together over the last year and in fact worked in tandem to go through one of uh, Heidi Haldeman's covered entities, HRSA audits in the fall of 2021. So they're both going to join us, talk a little bit about how they worked together and just share insights around the HRSA audit experience in general. Awesome. Great podcast. Great, great um, discussion. Uh, Hopefully I think everyone will enjoy it. Well, we're going to pause for a little break here. Uh, Plug one of the Spendman Pharmacy services with a, a Halloween themed ad, and we will catch everyone on the other side with Heidi and Heidi and Rob and talk about HRSA audits. The 340B Unscripted Podcast Halloween Edition is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. One of the scariest things in 340B is when the HRSA 340B audit notice arrives in the email box of your authorizing official or primary contact. What's even scarier though, is if you haven't had your annual mock audit review in years or ever. Now, if HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit www.spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendmen Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance and to help you feel less scared of, of a 340B HRSA audit and more like, we got this. Happy Halloween, everybody. All right, we're back now and we've got our guests with us today, Heidi Larson from Spendmend and Heidi Haldeman from Ohio Health. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. We've got a, a spooky, scary topic today, HRSA audit readiness. 
to discuss. So uh, a topic that always strikes fear inside those uh, working in the 340B program. So you've got some questions that I want to ask both of you around experience with the, uh, the, the HRSA audit process. Let's um, let's start with Heidi Haldeman. So so Heidi, uh, no, we worked with you in the past. You and Heidi Larson worked closely together last year through a HRSA audit notice. Um, describe the initial response and, and the the experience, kind of how you kick things off whenever you get that HRSA audit notice uh, from from OPA. Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely, you know, you joke about that fear, and that was definitely it to begin with. I think being my first HRSA notice that I'd ever received, um, emotionally a little all over the place, some panic, some moments of calm, a um, little bit of stress. But really for us, since we'd been working with Heidi and SpendMed, it was a blessing and a curse at the same time that we had just had our contracted external audit with SpendMed. We knew everything that we had to get done. But it was also cursed because we knew everything we had to get done in a very short window. So one of the first things we did was a rally of the troops. We pulled everyone together very quickly just to talk about the notice, the data request list, the next steps. What are, what are we going to do next? And one of the first things we talked about was quickly coming to an agreement on contracting with Spenman for their services to support us during the HRSA audit and then really dividing and conquering that data request list since it's so massive to say, okay, who's handling what? And ready, set, go. Let's get organized. Let's put a roadmap together and set up frequent meetings. So that's really how we kicked off our response and then just met on a frequent basis and adjusted as needed to, to gauge the needs where we're at, adjust where needed um, in the process. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into the the data request list responds and submitting and uploading all of the the data because I don't know just through the Hearst audits that I've been involved in that that often is the the most challenging aspect of the whole process. But in terms of the receipt of the Hearst audit notice, and this maybe is is more of a logistical um, question or discussion. Or for for your covered entity, are you the primary contact or the authorizing official? So I am not the primary contact or authorizing official. So for us, that is set up a, a little bit differently that yeah. those operating the 340B program, we're kind of the second in line to hear. It usually goes to um, our pharmacy directors are usually set up as the primary contact and our finance representatives um, as our authorizing officials. So it's a trickle down. So there's that pause to say, yeah. is it a scam? Could it just be a scam? You're, you know, you have that wishful thinking that maybe sure. somebody misread an email. This can't be happening to us already. They hit so, the fish button and they move on, right? Exactly. So, you know, that that is a big thing, though, too, is educating those in those roles to say, look for these, check your spam. You know, it's auditing season team, be looking for this. Don't just assume it's a scam or, you know, you know, that it went to the wrong box and got filtered into spam. Like, so that was a big thing for us that um, we continue to educate on that too. You know, we need to be your next call once you see that so that we can get the wheels turning. Yeah, that's, that's exactly where I was going at with that, with that question. We've heard that countless times from, from covered entities. You remember, you've got your, your authorizing officials, usually your, your CFO. And then, like you said, probably the pharmacy director or some, somebody in pharmacy leadership serves as the primary contact. But those are the only two individuals that get that HRSA audit notice um, from the Office of Pharmacy Affairs. So you want to make sure they're 
they're ready to receive and relay that information on to the rest of the 340B team. We've had folks say, you know, we had, you know, our HRSA audit samples from the Bazell auditor go into our spam or our junk folder. Or the HRSA audit report that we were waiting for ended up in our junk folder because of our hospital's um, exchange uh, server processes. So, so making sure that those folks that are in those key OPA uh, database um, positions are kind of always thinking of the need to kind of screen for for that communication that's coming to OPA. Yeah, and making sure they know that every day counts. Uh, sitting on it for a few days, that's three days lost in the preparation yeah. process. So we, we definitely harp on that as well. Yeah, exactly. The clock's ticking. As soon as you get that communication, you know, there's a lot of uh, tasks that need to keep, be completed. There are specific turnaround times that that OPA sets for those tasks. So you, you really don't want to delay um, kind of putting into action your, your plan for for responding. So great, great thoughts. So th this question is for, for Heidi Larson. So Heidi, you know, what first interaction that a lot of covered entities have with um, with OPA and with the Bazell group that's performing the audits on behalf of OPA is the, the pre-audit call. Any thoughts or tips around how you prepare for that first kind of verbal encounter with um, the Bazell group? Yes, actually, it's kind of a scary time because you get the letter and then all of a sudden you're talking to your auditor. So I know this sounds really crazy, but one of the first things that I... Um, talk to my clients about is during the periodic call, the auditor is going to ask that everybody introduce themselves and not only introduce themselves, but explain their role in the 340B program. And if you kind of don't have a plan on how you're going to do that, the audit call can, the periodic call can kind of start off on a bad note. So what yeah. I usually say is um, either have a set order that you're going to do it, who's going to be included on the call or designate a person to call each um, individual that's participating in the periodic call out so that you can smoothly do your introductions to the HRSA auditor. Another thing that I like to do just kind of prep people is to designate someone um, to speak on behalf of the covered entity so that not everybody's talking over each other or there's any discussion about how to answer that question posed by the auditor. So just kind of having someone as a representative to speak on behalf of the covered entity. And I also try to um, kindly suggest that others that are on the call remain quiet unless they're um, called upon to answer a specific question. That kind of helps to make sure that the flow of the conversation with the auditor is smooth and that there's not any um, interactions that may be inappropriate for the periodic call. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, let me ask you another question. Uh, how about actual participants in the periodic call? So I, I've been on a number of these periodic calls, and I think kind of kind of like how Heidi Houdeman explained, um, you, you rally your troops and you get everybody involved, and, and occasionally you get the periodic call calendar invite set up, and you know somebody from the covered entity starts forwarding that invite to to everybody under the sun, everybody that has some some either direct or indirect impact with the 340B program. So maybe your billing office, your uh, physician credentialing office, your, um, you know, maybe a nurse manager from from a child site or something like that. Any thoughts on round whether or not it's um, strategic to, to maybe limit the number of participants in the periodic call? Or do you want everybody that could potentially um, be involved on that first preliminary call? 
So I'm kind of of the mindset that everybody is welcome as long as they know the rules of the game. So um, the more people that are involved in the call, I think that shows that um, the covered entity is vested in the program and they find it as a priority and they want to make sure that the auditor knows that we have a lot of people working together for um, compliance with the 340B program. I do say the rules of the game in that um, I alluded to this before in that people do not speak up unless asked upon so that they remain quiet. Obviously, they're going to introduce themselves at the beginning. But after that, then that representative who we identified would be the spokesperson for the covered entity would then be the person to answer all the questions unless a question came up where they would have to say turf it to billing or turf it to the credentialing team. Um, And I think that's fine as long as you know um, kind of ahead of time the process that you're going to take as a covered entity on the periodic call. Um, To add to that, I would also have, uh, if I was engaged, which I was with Ohio Health, we would review the data request list to make sure that there weren't any questions or anything that they want that wanted to ask the auditor um, for clarification. And we are fortunate in that SpendMend has kind of a template of some of the commonly asked questions. So prior to the periodic call, I would rally the troops again and we would pretend like I was the HRSA auditor and I would go through some mock audit questions And based on their answers, sometimes I would divert and um, ask some additional questions and then have an education session with the covered entity on what was said that was good. And I would say, if asked that question, continue to do that. And what maybe to limit and, and to stop talking or not provide so much information. So kind of guiding the covered entity to appropriately answer the questions for the periodic call so that it runs smoothly And every question is answered either from the auditor's perspective or the covered entity's perspective, and that there's a good um, conversation going on and expectations of what's going to happen um, during the audit itself. Yeah. So, So Heidi from Ohio Health, after that first periodic call, how did you feel going into the next steps of the HRSA audit process? We definitely had some lessons learned, like Heidi said. We came out of that, I would admittedly say we fumbled a little bit in some of our answers with having a lot of people at the table, but at least if it was going to happen, it happened in the pre-audit call and not during the actual audit itself. Uh, Ultimately, it caused us to have to explain a little bit more in our narrative, but we recovered from it. We went into the audit knowing exactly who was going to speak, that we wanted all these people at the table but we had a clear plan on who was going to be our point person, who was covering certain subjects and how that communication would go for the duration of the audit process. Yes. That's something that I I've coached clients that we've worked with through the HRSA audit process and have helped prep for that, that pre-audit call is, is really not to, to overthink it. Really. It's a, it's a discovery call for the Bizell auditor to, you know, one review the data request with the covered entity, but also, you know, kind of get their bearings around the size and the scope of that covered entities, 340B program. So, you know, not a lot of really challenging questions or, or questions that you shouldn't be able to answer just by having a good kind of fundamental understanding of how your, your, programs infrastructure is is set up all right next next step that 
in the HRSA audit process, really responding to that data request list. So you get your HRSA audit notice. Um, they, they're going to be setting dates for the pre-audit call and also giving you uh, due dates for, for getting the data in. The data request list response is a huge task, Rob. Any thoughts or tips or strategies that you think covered entities should be looking at throughout the year to do preemptively? So before you even ever get a HRSA audit notice, what should folks be doing with all of the data that needs to be organized um, and submitted in response to a, a HRSA audit notice. Yeah, I like I like that uh, question, Greg. It's and by the way, uh, Heidi and Heidi, great great answers. Love listening <clears throat> to to your uh, kind of responses and things you've done around your HRSA audits. I can tell um, that auto is probably a good audit, uh, Heidi Haldeman, that that uh, you went through at least hopefully from a um, outcomes perspective. Definitely sounds like you've you've got your stuff together. Um, but I think that's the key. It's it's not, you know, if if you're really preparing for your hearse audit after you get your hearse audit notice, you're limited on how many things you can actually do, right? Whether it's old paste database corrections, uh, fixing some things with uh, addresses, built to ship to addresses, with, if you have to register new locations that maybe you missed um, because you thought they were co-joined in an offsite location, all those things take time. Um, so by the time you get your hearse audit notice, and, and Greg, I think to your point, the Turnaround time is a little shorter, it seems, for some of these audits where we used to have four, five, six weeks. Sometimes we're seeing three weeks or four weeks, um, and that's not a lot of time. And so the time to prepare for your HERSA audit is actually before you get your HERSA audit notice. Um, I, you know, so I'll give you two, give them two options. I'll give you the DIY option, and then of course the what I call the easy button option. The DIY option, um, if you already haven't, if you didn't participate in the webinar that uh, Jennifer Hagen and Chelsea Violet. Um, conducted on October 4th, um, this month in October. Um, I suppose you could be listening to this podcast later, but October of 2022, we have a webinar where um, since uh, HRSA's fiscal year starts at the beginning of October, so we're already in uh, HRSA's fiscal year 2023 at the time of even recording this podcast, um, the HRSA audit data request updates show up before that. And so we saw that with a, a variety of clients that received the HRSA audit letters for um, Q1 of HRSA audit or Q4 for us on a calendar year. And, and in there has some updates. And so in this in this webinar, um, Jennifer Hagen and, and Chelsea Violet go through that data request so that everyone's fully aware of what each component means and what's needed. So my recommendation for the DIYers is to really go back through that webinar. If you don't have access to it or can't find it, email someone at Spendman, we'll get you a copy of it. But go watch that or listen to that and really identify what you need to collect ahead of time. And I think uh, Jennifer and, and Chelsea do a good job of, of highlighting some of those trickier ones or things that take a little more time. A lot of these crosswalks that are very helpful, does they take time to prepare, so making sure you have those. But I will say the easy button option is really to get an annual mock audit, right? That's um, one thing, something we pride ourselves on doing at Spendman is, is doing a very thorough mock audit because the whole goal of that mock audit, annual mock audit, is to make sure that your hearse audit ready. So whether it's our firm or another firm that does these audits, find a good reputable firm that has good experience doing these audits, has seen what HRSA does, stays up to date, so that when they do your mock audit, you actually get to go through everything. And that way, when there's any deficiencies that are identified or things or areas for improvement, those can be done ahead of time. Because again, there's only so much you can do by the time you receive your letter. Not saying there isn't, you should still review your data, making sure you're providing the most accurate and up-to-date data. Sometimes you can make some, some minor shifts or changes to policy or practice, but but in general, the time to prepare for the audits before. So I'll pause there because Heidi, either Heidi might have some additional input there. Yeah, I, I agree completely. 
having that annual external audit, it, like I said, it was a blessing and a curse for us since it occurred just two months you know, prior to us getting our letter. We hadn't gotten to everything we wanted to address in that short amount of time yet. But on the flip side, we knew what we had to do and we, we were able to prioritize and we'd worked with Heidi numerous times in the past. So it was a smooth transition for us to go from being that mock audit to real life audit. And you know, Heidi knew exactly where we needed to go and focus on in our short amount of time. Yeah, unfortunately, um, it was the perfect storm because we just had had our external audit or I had just conducted the external audit. Shortly after that, um, they received their HRSA audit notice. And then you had mentioned, Rob, in your uh, comments that some hospitals are getting a short turnaround time. Guess who got a short turnaround time? Ohio Health. So we ended up having to... Um, scramble a bit or work diligently to make sure that all the pieces of the um, annual audit we were addressing while also looking at um, the data that was specifically requested for the sample period. So it was um, a lot of work and Ohio Health has an amazing team that was really dedicated to making sure that we were checking all the boxes. It's um, a monumental task when you get that, and a scary, very scary, when you get that HRSA audit noticing, um, saying that you have an audit coming up, but the more prepared you can be, the less stress it will be to get all that information in um, and review it to make sure that it makes sense before you upload it to the HRSA database. Yeah, I mean, depending on the the size and the complexity of your covered entity, you you may be uploading upwards of hundreds of of documents, depending on how many 340B universes you have and how many purchasing accounts you have, and whether or not you're carving in Medicaid, a, a variety of child sites that you might have registered on the OPA database. So, you know, I think you're right, Heidi. It's just being organized and putting in place some assigned tasks around gathering all the data. Heidi from Ohio Health, what, what was maybe a couple of the biggest challenges around gathering all the data? Any pain points aside through that process? It, yeah. Aside from it being so much data, I think it's understanding the order in which to tackle some of it as well, because one piece of the data might impact another piece of the data that somebody else is working on. So that communication and the timing of it can be everything the purchasing data was probably one of the hardest pieces for us to tackle and as far as even being extremely time consuming for us, getting that account crosswalk and gathering the invoices. And for us, it was requested of us to also have that in our narrative. So we had to piece everything together. If we added an account on one document, we had to make sure it get at, that it got added to our narrative as well. And, you know, for us, I went into that thinking like we're pretty solid for a narrative. We just did this for, you know, Spendman mock audit. We've got it, a couple little changes. Then we went into our pre-audit call and we went from what was a two to three page narrative to being about a seven or eight page narrative by the time we took all the auditor's requests for things that um, she had wanted to have included in it. So, you know, it's it's kind of taking it all with a grain of salt. You just pick a piece, you tackle it. I think for us, having daily touch bases helped a lot. We were able to keep things going. It was a chance to ask questions, get opinions. And instead of, you know, 
putting the brakes on something because we were waiting on somebody else. It just kept things moving, which is really important when you only have a few weeks to get everything prepared. Yeah. And I want to add that Heidi touched upon something. Um, each HRSA auditor is unique in what they want to see. I mean, they all have the general um, basic information, but some of them ask for additional information, such as including um, descriptors in the program narrative. Um, Ohio Health is a big system. This was a complicated uh, covered entity. So there were a lot of questions surrounding how the program was being um, run compliantly. And therefore, that's why that program narrative got long. So just because you think you're completely ready and you're good to go, there might be some twists and turns and things that you need to add to um, to provide a comprehensive um, data to the auditor based on what the auditor is asking for and expecting to see. I think it's also hard to let the document go. You know, you look at it three, four, five times because it's real now. You don't, are we ready to turn it over and say this is our finished and final product? And that, you know, that piece is a little scary. I think the letting it go and saying, okay, grade us now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, the, the pharmacy in all of us is, you know, <laughs> just, you know, making sure that it's absolutely perfect. And, you know, that they, they, they acknowledge that because they will acknowledge that during the periodic call. If you upload a document, we can't let you retract that document. So if you made some type of error in, in compiling that data and you upload it to the, the NIH portal, it's there for for Bazell and, and OPA to review, uh, review, you may be able to upload a like a, another document that's that's a revised version of that. But uh, you're right; you want to have uh, a high degree of confidence in in that what you're uploading is accurate and reflective of how your program's actually operating. And, and to add to that, um, what I did with Ohio Health because we had such a short turnaround time is we didn't upload everything until we had all the documents ready. We re reviewed them to make sure that they were consistent across each document, whether it be policy, program narrative. We made sure that everything was consistent across each document prior to uploading. And then once we had everything ready, we uploaded. The HRSA auditors say that you can upload um, as you get documents ready. Um, I'm sure there's people that do that, but I kind of feel more confident in, okay, do we have all the data request item pieces? And then um, once we have all the pieces and we know that everything is consistent, then uploading the, the information. Because as Heidi alluded to, we had some additional pieces of information that we had to add to the program narrative. And then just making sure that that was consistent across um, the policy and the operations manual and some of the other documents that we had. Um, just kind of a, a double check. I do recommend also not waiting to the last minute um, to upload the data because um, sometimes there's some technical difficulties. So I do try to have my clients upload the data the day prior to the deadline so that if there is any technical difficulties in getting the, the information uploaded, they have some time or some leeway to get that um, corrected or fixed so that the, the information can be uploaded. Yes. Speaking about turnaround time, Rob, I'll ask, ask you this, this particular question. What, what's OPA's flexibility in asking for more time, you know, especially after having gone through, you know, pandemic for the last two years, we've had a lot of covered entities with resource constraints and, and staffing constraints and other reasons why they may need to have asked for more time. What, what's your take on whether or not it's appropriate to, to ask for a little more time, ask for an extension, ask for a little bit of flexibility. 
Yeah, it's it's always worth asking, right? You know that old adage: if you don't ask, then the answer's already no. Um, so especially if you're having struggling with a few documents, what we've seen is sometimes some documents are easier to upload. You know, they aren't going to change. Uh, for instance, the the Medicare cost report, uh, policy and procedures potentially, unless you're trying to get some last minute changes in. Um, <laughs> So it's really the sometimes the data and, and occasion that the you know some TPAs or some some vendors sometimes it takes a little longer to get data out of of the vendor software. There was one vendor recently that um, actually had some downtime due to a cyber attack, and so people were struggling getting uh, reports out. It wasn't that long of a period, so I don't think it had a huge impact. Um, but if if you're waiting to the last minute and trying to make sure you're cleaning things up that that were just anomalies in there that you're already in progress of fixing and you're waiting for a cleaner data set for HRSA, um, then that that potentially, you know, if you waited to the last minute, like you're saying, and then now what your TPA vendor has downtime for whatever reason, that could be a problem. But but we have in the past, um, due to some issues with, uh, you know, getting the data we need or obtaining the data we need from a TPA, um, not being able to get in, ask for a little more time. So the, it's really up to the HRSA auditor um, that you're working with. And typically, as long as you uploaded everything else or m- most of what they need so they can start working on the pre-audit, um, they'll give you a little more time, whether it's a few more days. Of course, they will need it prior to the actual HRSA audit itself. Um, yeah. But we've had situations where we just couldn't get some of the data points for some reason, like prescriptions, for instance. We couldn't get the prescriptions they wanted. Um, now, that's more related to the three days prior to the audit. Um, which we'll probably get to, but sometimes we couldn't get them until they were on site. And so they, they were fine with that, um, or even sometimes uploaded after they left for the audit. So so I think one of those, if you know you're going to have trouble getting a data, uh, certain piece of data before the audit, HRSA data due date, uh, definitely just have that conversation with the HRSA auditor and the Bazell representative. There's a few different ones at Bazell that uh, work with the auditor on, on that component. And just ask, say, hey, here's what's going on. Could we get a few more days on this particular um, data element? And my guess is they'll pretty usually be pretty flexible with you um, as long as you're getting everything else in. Yeah, no harm, no foul in asking. So, mm-hmm. yeah, good. All right. So data is uploaded. Everybody gets a chance to take a take a big sigh, take a deep breath. Next, you're preparing for an on-site visit or perhaps a remote site visit. So uh, this question, I guess we'll start with, with Heidi Larson. What, what, what do you typically advise your, your clients to do, you know, leading into the actual audit to make sure that everybody's ready to articulate how 340B program operations are occurring at the covered entity? So this is where the fun begins, because this is where we want to make sure everybody that potentially will be spoken to during the audit, like credentialing, um, billing, finance. These are all people that are purchasing or whoever does the purchasing. Um, these are all the people that will likely be engaged to um, have questions asked of them dur- during the audit by the HRSA auditor. So um, getting those people involved and having an understanding of what their role is in the audit process is now kind of the focus. Now we're preparing for what could be asked, who needs to know what they they need to, um, what their role might be, um, and just making sure that we're ready. So we had a lot of um, meetings whereby we were practice or role playing, where I would role play as the auditor, the HRSA auditor, and ask questions and then gauge kind of, kind of like we did with the periodic call, kind of gauge their answers and kind of guide them as to, you know, don't less is more. Don't say as much as what you said there. Although 
everything you said is right. Let's keep it short. And if the first auditor has a follow-up question, then let's let's address those follow-up questions. Um, we also, because some of the first auditors want to have a short presentation at the beginning of the audit by the covered entity, we did prepare. I usually have my clients prepare a short presentation that explains the covered entity, how they're using 340B program um, savings, what universes they have, any strange nuances or differences that they have in the program, and just kind of give a high-level overview of what, um, what their program is about and um, how their involvement in the program has bettered their patient care. Um, we also talk um, about carving in, again, with the billing folks, just kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of what questions could potentially come up um, or that we see frequently come up during the audit, and then based on um, the covered entity's answers, what other questions might be asked, and just trying to guide um, them to have a, a succinct, appropriate answer to questions that might come about from the HRSA auditor. I, I love that that suggestion of having kind of like a high-level kind of overview presentation, your 340B program. I've been involved in a handful of HRSA audits where executive leadership performed that 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 presentation. It really, I think, sets a really positive tone when you can kind of explain what your hospital is, what kind of services you're providing to your community, what you're doing with your 340B savings. It just kind of, you know, creates this really positive, you, you know, constructive tone around um, the 340B program and, and makes the rest of the conversations that um, transpire from that point forward just, just a lot more um, collegial, I guess. Heidi from Ohio Health. What, what, any specific topics that that you felt you needed to educate your staff on so that they were prepared for the actual uh, HRSA visit? Yes, like Heidi said, we did a lot of Q and A and practicing with you know various positions and those involved in the program. One of the things I felt like our operations team did a great job of doing was going out and talking to the staff, those that are only involved on the, the peripheral side of things. So they went out, they did some educating, speaking, just high level, you know, if you see the auditor, here's what to expect. If you get asked, you know, just going over those little pearls of the 340B program, you know, whether that be in the nursing areas, ED, just the pharmacy area in general, um, you know, it, it's a lot of, it's better to be prepared than not prepared. So some of it, nothing ever came of it. You know, the auditor didn't do a whole lot of touring for us, but at least we were able to say that, you know, we had talked to the teams and they were prepared should that happen. Like Heidi said, we were one of those sites. We had to give a presentation to our auditor. It was requested of us to essentially take our narrative and kick off our audit with a presentation of our program. So that is something that we did as well, highlighting our covered entity and all of our work that we do there. But yeah, really, it's keeping that line of communication. I think I was one of those people that was naive enough to think that we got through the data request that maybe we'd get to pause and breathe. But I truly think the work continued up until the audit began. So the more you can do during that those final couple of weeks there before the actual audit, the more prepared you're going to be. Yeah. You know what? A, uh, a newer approach or an approach that looks like the Bazell group's kind of taken, at least during the start of the, the pandemic, was providing the sample list a few days ahead of time. So it gives you a chance to kind of organize 
the the documentation that you need to um, uh, display during the the site visit. So Heidi from Ohio Health, any strategies or what was your process when you received the audit samples and how you you used the the little bit of a head start that you got to organize yourself? Yeah, and what a difference that makes being able to have those in advance. So we went through every single one. Um, our core 340B group did. We got together. We went through all of them. We pinpointed ones that we thought we might have to explain things a little bit differently or justify a bit more for for qualification purposes. You know, if you do the work up front, you know, finding a way to qualify it or knowing that oh. We see this is coming from here. We know that the auditor is going to ask us a question about this. So definitely take the time, go through those samples, go through them with a fine tooth comb, especially knowing that auditors are really looking at your accumulations more so than what they ever have before. Being prepared to really look at all aspects of that claim will set you up for greater success. Yeah, so, so, so Heidi, Lars, oh, Heidi, go ahead. I was just going to say, so um, when we got the sample set three days before, I tasked the team to go through and review them, like Heidi mentioned. And then any of the ones where we thought, where they thought that they might have um, question on, um, we had a discussion. We had a meeting and we went through every single one where they thought there might be question. And um, we were able to find supporting evidence that that particular sample did meet the um, definition or the eligibility requirements for a 340B drug. Um, one thing that we also did is we looked at the accumulator. HRSA auditors um, are putting more focus on how are you accumulating these items and how your TPA, for those of you that use um, a, a system to track the purchasing, whether it's going into the 340B bucket or GPO bucket or for the dish hospitals and um, the WAC bucket. And so really watching and looking that uh, Ohio Health had a very, very um, detailed auditor that went through 20, was it 20 samples, I think it was, whereby we had to pull up the accumulator. So one thing that I'd like my clients to do that I'm supporting through a HRSA audit is really understand their EMR where they can find things and we practice so that it's a smooth movement through the EMR so they're not fumbling around. Um, and also where to look for things if they're using an accumulator, where they're you where you can look to find the supporting evidence that a HRSA auditor might look for. So really kind of having a good understanding of where to look within the, the platforms that you're using so that you can move quickly through the um, audit sampling period and not be trying to stumble around to find the information that you need to prove that that particular sample is eligible for 340B. Yeah, I like, I like that suggestion of, of practice. You know, you get the samples ahead of time. So I always use that, you know, some some of those samples just to gather the team that's actually going to be driving the bus, essentially, you know, sharing their screen and walking through the EHR and the accumulator and and just run through a handful of samples just to, to help everybody kind of get a good cadence for 
producing all of that 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 documentation. Some of the Bazell otters have specific sequences for what they want to see. I want to see the location. I want to see the patient status. I want to see the administration record. Um, but others may just let you decide, okay, what's the most efficient way to hit all of the the waypoints in the sampling. So if you can practice and and kind of rehearse that that sequence of of uh, the the chart review, just makes the the sampling portion of the audit go much much more smoothly, I think. Any questions that came up during your audit at um, Ohio Health ID that that kind of you took as curveballs or you weren't anticipating? Oh, I can't think of any real curveballs. Can you think of any, Heidi? I felt like everything we had practiced so much that I don't recall there being anything unexpected. No, I think I think we, like you said, had practiced so much. And I think, too, that if there were any curveballs that were presented, that we were pretty well um, prepared to address them or at least think logically through to find the answer. We really did work. Um, I, I, I even to this day call myself <laughs> with them. I'm, I'm their teammate, not a consultant because we work so closely together um, that I consider myself part of their team. I don't know if they like that or not, but um, we do. I, <laughs> I really, um, respect and enjoy working with the Ohio Health Group. And I feel like um, part of their team. And so I really took this um, audit to heart as I do with all of my HRSA audits that I support because um, it's really a team effort to get prepared, to get data in, and then also to get through the audit. I don't think it's um, an easy process by any means. It takes a lot of work, a lot of dedication, and it's a really a team effort because a lot of times the, the pharmacy department gets tasked with the 340B program, but when you really think about um, all the pieces that participate or play into a compliant 340B program, you've got many other departments within the hospital that are um, key, play a key role, and that um, can be your credentialing department, your, um, the department that takes or houses any um, residents, any of the personnel in the finance department, billing. So there's so many different aspects of the program that come into play that it's really a team effort. And so I enjoy working with many different departments within the covered entity to prepare for a HRSA audit. Um, so it's just, um, it's challenging, it's stressful, it's scary, but it also um, really is a, a great time to bring the, the departments together in a common cause for 340B compliance. Awesome. Rob, how about you? You know, doing this for, what, 10 years now, any any questions or topics of discussion that came up in any of the HRSA audits you've supported over the years that just you just weren't expecting to have to talk about? Yeah, you know, every once in a while you you'll be in a HRSA audit and and something comes up where you haven't seen it. You feel like if you haven't seen it or heard it before, and you're like, oh, we better update the rest of the team on that. And that's what what is nice yeah. is every Monday our team meets. We 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 this is the exact question we ask the whole team: Has anyone seen or learned anything new from HRSA audits or current audits that you've conducted that's worth sharing? So we do all that sharing, but uh, you know, some of the ones that 
that were new um, last year. Um, and again, we have, I haven't started um, audits this year. We've got a couple planned here for Q4, but, um, and I should say this year, I mean, for the next fiscal year, 2023, but in the 2022 fiscal year, you know, we had a couple of HRSA auditors, not only doing the accumulation samples where they're doing these samples for the administered drugs, and then they'll select some some subcategories, some auditors look at all of them for accumulation accuracy. Some look at a subset of your, your samples. And that was pretty commonplace for administered drugs. But when I saw one auditor do it for retail or contract pharmacy, I was like, oh, wait a second. We haven't seen yeah. that one before. Um, so it's always, you always get this little pause, like, okay, is this new practice? Is, is this just this auditor wanting to do this? And maybe it's a little out of the normal scope. And so then we learn over time, nope, that that's maybe something that more auditors are starting to do. So, but that was one that caught me off guard was um, when they started looking at retail samples, because we traditionally think, well, multipliers and accumulation for retail is pretty clean. I mean, most of it's oral tablets or whole injectable packs. It's hard to get that wrong, um, you know, compared to the more complex billing and, and accumulation on the administered drug side. And, uh, but, uh, you know, to be fair, I've started doing that on some of my audits and have found issues with retail or contract pharmacy accumulation being off. Um, So definitely something to think about and add to your, to your own self auditing or, uh, you know, on our annual mock audits. Yeah. I I can remember us kind of talking about that during one of our team meetings, how, you know, we had some, some Bazell auditors that were actually looking at accumulations in the retail setting. And I I typically hadn't looked at that before. And, you know, the very next audit, they said, well, we're going to pull a sample specifically to look at, um, how things are, or how accumulations are banked into TPA, and we found a sample where there was a quantity error billed by the farm dispensing pharmacy incorrectly, and that resulted in a, you know, big big spike in positive accumulations. We we're able to quick quickly correct it in time, but you know, I never had really thought about that being a potential um, avenue for for an error in the in the retail space. So always love hearing from clients that we've worked with and the other auditors that are on our team bringing back aha moments or kind of light bulb moments from from these HRSA audits so that we can keep compiling the list of questions that we want to make sure our our covered entities are, are prepared to to address and things that we need to look at in our audit process yeah if i can share one more um not sure if uh Heidi saw that Ohio Health or if they have the situation, but another one was uh, re- probably in the last couple of years that really changed how I audited was um, specifically looking at situations where you might have a single cost center, but multiple locations. Um, in, in one of our clients' case, it happened to be uh, the, a cancer infusion center. Infusion center um, had a main location at the parent hospital, and they had an offsite infusion center. But just the way they set it up as an organization, they didn't create two separate cost centers. They just used one cost center, same manager. I think there's some good efficiencies there. Same team. They just send some people out to this other infusion center um, that's offsite, um, kind of a standalone. Um, and and so the manager kind of managed it just as a secondary location. Well, HRSA does not look at multiple locations of a single cost center the same. They need to be able to confirm that each location is actually part of the hospital or the covered entity and not where we're, you know, the covered entity uh, erroneous, I'm not going to say intentionally, but erroneously concluded that it was part of it. So they're, they had asked for separate expenses and revenue for each of the locations. Well, if it's one cost center, you know, the Medicare cost report doesn't require that level of granularity. So it is this extra work that has, so if you're going to have this situation where you have a single cost center with multiple locations that are either using 340B drugs or administering 340B drugs or writing prescriptions, then the take-home message was, oh my gosh, we have to make sure those managers are pr- somehow separately outside of the cost report or trial balance, since it's not necessary to record it there, to keep expenses and revenue separate so that we can report that to HRSA during a HRSA audit. So that was another big one for 
for me up until that audit. And it did cause like, I normally don't have a lot of panic during Hearst audits because we've yeah. seen it all before, but you get something like that and your brain starts racing like, oh my gosh, um, is this new? Is this, you know, where's this coming from? But just, so that's a good one to keep a heads up on if you have that situation occurring at your covered entity today. Yeah, I'll share. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Heidi. I was just going to say, kind of along that same vein, I did have one of my covered entities who was utilizing that new definition of an eligible location whereby the revenue and expenses were allocated to the Medicare cost report, but it had yet to be listed on the Medicare cost report. So it wasn't on OPACE yet. And that HRSA auditor specifically wanted to see the trial balance whereby which it was qualifying for 340B. So not only um, having all of your data ready to go, but also looking at it from the perspective of if you have any locations utilizing 340B drug that are not yet registered on OPACE, making sure that you have that information from the finance department to show that that particular location is eligible for 340B. Yeah, that's a great tip. Just and just to kind of add to what you were saying, Rob, just that that kind of minute uh, panic flare that can sometimes creep up when questions are asked that you weren't prepared for. I share, you know, this would have been we're talking maybe five years ago or so now um, doing a walkthrough with the Bazell auditor of our clean site cancer center infusion center. And the, uh, the Bazell auditor just happened to, you know, ask, so, so tell us what you're doing with regard to inventory reconciliation. And I, I like stopped and I'm sure I turned, you know, a, a really pasty shade of white <laughs> when she asked that, because, you know, that wasn't something that we had ever considered at that time doing. Um, and, you know, ultimately that not having that reconciliation at that time didn't didn't result in any um, findings in an audit report. But I had like a huge aha moment. It's like, yeah, this is actually an area where there is some risk if you're not tracking how much you're buying based on what your utilization is. And since then, and I know that's something that we recommend to our clients around um, clean site management is, is doing inventory reconciliation and comparing utilization versus purchases. But that was a question that wasn't even on, on our radar at the time. Uh, we hadn't worked with uh, with you, Rob, and, and the turnkey folks at that time to prepare for that audit. So maybe we would have been prepared to answer that question, but I can just remember thinking, oh my gosh, that's a, a great question and a great idea of something that we need to do to enhance integrity of how we're managing the program in our clean sites. So, Yeah, that's a good one. All right. So Rob, I'm going to throw this question to you. Final audit report comes back. And, you know, I think sometimes people get caught off guard because, you know, from the time that the audit visit occurs to when you get that audit report back, it could be, you know, a couple of months. I mean, we even have some some clients that are, are still waiting for audit reports from audits that occurred in the first quarter of uh, 2022. Um, any thoughts or what your approach is to reviewing any potential findings that might be listed in an audit report and what goes into the decision making around whether or not you want to challenge findings or accept the findings that are in the report and uh, implement a cap? Yeah. And, and I don't know if this is because growing up as a kid, my mom always said I should be a lawyer because I argue everything or because I've hung out with Rich Boer for way too long. But uh, Rich is a lawyer. But um, I always feel like I would have challenged everything. But um, just real quick. Um, so what happens when you get that final report back, you essentially have 60 days to respond with a cap if you have findings. Of course, if you don't have findings then there's no cap response required, but 60 days for a cap response. But you have 30 days 
to challenge. Uh, it's not that's not the exact word they use, but dispute findings um, to provide more detail around findings to get them reversed. But basically, thirty days to challenge that finding. So when you get the report, time is of the essence. I think Heidi Houtman mentioned or Heidi Larson mentioned that hey, at the beginning, make sure that everyone who's supposed to be contacted lets you know as soon as they can because once that clock, once you get that HRSA audit report back with the findings on them, you have to really think about what your challenge is going to be and if you have grounds to challenge. And where I'll say is especially recently understanding that HRSA really um, struggles with the ability to enforce guidance today. Many areas of the 340B program are kind of gray. Um, They fall into a guidance or an interpretation. And so really look at the statute for whatever your finding is and and likely consult with, you know, if if you work with Spenman, consult with us. If you work with another firm, consult with them. Uh, Multiple uh, law firms um, that we work with as well that we recommend if you want uh, actual legal opinions but really determine if you want to challenge it. Because I think in many cases, we're very successful of, of overturning findings because they're guidance or we find additional data to support the qualification or whatever the issue is. Um, so I always recommend looking at it and see, do we have uh, an avenue to challenge? And if you do, then challenge. You have nothing to lose. Um, you've got one shot. Um, I think uh, some quote from Hamilton comes to mind there. Um, don't waste your shot because you basically, you have to put everything into this challenge because you're going to submit it back to HRSA and they're going to respond back, you know, yes, we agree. And they're going to adjust your report and hopefully remove the finding or findings, um, or they're going to reissue the report with the findings. And then you still have um, <clears throat> some time to, to conduct or complete your cap if needed. So I always recommend challenging if you have some grounds or, or mechanism to do so. Um, but just my general thought and idea. I'm not sure if anyone else has any other thoughts with that. Heidi, Heidi, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think if there's a case to be made, it's always worth attesting and, and going for it. Why, I mean, why not? At the end of the day, worst case is they don't accept it. And, you know, then you have to go back and do your action plan. I completely agree with that. Obviously, if it's a finding that you really don't have any um, background data or anything to dispute, um, might be a futile effort, but, um, you know, it's worth trying. Yeah, no, I I kind of concur with that. And I, I just kind of look at the process where, you know, just the nature of how these audits are performed. I mean, I think there's opportunity for some information to get lost in translation or not be fully transcribed over to OPA. You're working during the 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 site visit, the on-site visit or remote site visit with the Bazell auditor. They're performing discovery. They're gathering their, you know, the documentation that you're showing them. They're drafting their version of the report. And then that gets issued to um, Office of Pharmacy Affairs. And then it's OPA that issues a um, final audit report back to the covered entity. So always, I suggest to my clients when they get an audit report and there are findings or AFIs in there, you'll make sure that those findings are accurately reflective of how the, the how the program was at the time because maybe there was something that was missed um, in the the transcription of the the data and the notes gathered during the site visit to when OPA cuts that that final report. All right, so getting close to the end here, want to go around the 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 table, the virtual table here, and, and just have everybody share kind of a tip or a pearl of wisdom um, for others that are listening, that are maybe in the midst of the HRSA audit process now, um, or have yet to experience a HRSA audit, um, and what what you'd want to suggest to them. So let's start with our our friend Ohio Health Heidi. 
Yeah. So if you have the ability and the resources to do it, I highly recommend engaging with a consultant to support you in the process. You know, it's having a project manager, a content expert right at your fingertips through the entire process. And so you never feel alone in that. Um, you know, if you can't do that, you know, not everyone can, no big deal. But have a plan regardless of what it is. Have a plan, stick to your plan, have frequent touch bases, and you'll get through it. Great. Heidi Larson, how about you? Um, I think, obviously, I would agree with Heidi, but um, personally, I think making sure that you're engaging everybody that will have potential role in the, the um, audit, making sure that they're aware of what their responsibilities will be and educating them as to what questions might be coming their way from a HRSA auditor. So just um, rallying the troops, getting everybody ready, getting everybody on board. Hopefully um, some of that has been already done, um, but you know, you get that audit letter and, and um, get spooked out a little bit. And uh, that's the time to start really rallying the troops and start moving towards getting the information ready and making sure everybody is prepared and comfortable when that on-site audit or remote, in some cases, audit occurs. Excellent. Rob, what about you? I, 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 the, my first one was going to be the one that Heidi uh, Houdeman um, said, so that was good. Um, I agree with Heidi Larson as well. Um, so I guess I'll add, um, when you get those samples ahead of time, just plan on clearing off your schedule and someone go through all of them. That way you can navigate much more um, effectively while you're on audit. You will know where to look. You're not stumbling trying to go through the MAR or to you know um, uh, scan records or whatever. You know where to go. You have all the information. So just take those time, those three days before the audit, when you get all those samples and go through them. That's going to be hugely beneficial. But, but I think Heidi Heldeman's right. Planning for a, a, a weekly call, weekly touch base, having everyone included, reviewing all the data ahead of time really staying on top of that, that project management up until the audit is critical for success. I think that's been a, a best practice we've seen that we've um, tried to in, uh, include and incorporate with any of our clients going through audits every time we can. Yeah. Yeah, I'll add just, you know, don't wait for the HRSA audit notice to start gathering some of the data. The data request list that that um, OPA uses is is public. It's available on HRSA's website. You know, somebody from our team can can certainly provide that to you if you need it. But, you know, there's opportunity to kind of stage some of that documentation ahead of time. If you're a big covered entity that's got a lot of purchasing accounts, you're going to need to pull an invoice from every single purchasing account that you have um, have currently open, regardless of the, the type. So your 340B, your GPO, your WAC accounts, you're gonna need an invoice from every single account. There's no reason you can't start to stage those invoice examples early in the year. I will sometimes tell covered entities, put all of your accounts into a rolling six month schedule. And every six months, refresh a handful of the invoices that you're gonna need to have because once you get that HRSA audit notice, there's additional documents that you're gonna need to pull. All of your utilization data, all of your purchasing details, the purchase order details, those the UBO4s, those take time to gather. Um, the things like the invoices, the location crosswalk, your contract pharmacy crosswalk, or your purchasing crosswalk, you can have that all staged and ready to go. So as soon as you get your HRSA audit notice, you can just check those items off the list and start working on the more problematic or, or the more labor-intensive data elements that you need to gather. All right. Well, I'm, 
I think we're 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 just about done here. Probably going to go head out trick or treating here in a little bit. Um, everybody wants you to weigh in. What's your favorite type of Halloween candy, Rob? I'm going to start with you. Ooh, um, I'm not going to lie. I am a big fan of the Charleston Chew, um, but I do like to freeze them so they're crunchy. So that's my favorite. Oh, Heidi Larson, what's your favorite? Well, for me, it's definitely not candy corn. Um, but does it have to be candy? Because the fall weather, I just, fall is my favorite season. I love a good caramel apple. And if it has nuts on it, even better. Um, I'm not much of a candy person, but a caramel apple that has my heart every time. Well, at least it's a candy. At least it's yeah. a candied apple. I, 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 but I did assume you were going to say something like a pencil or a nickel or something. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> if I have to make a candy bar, I love coconut, so an almond joy would be up there. Mm. Do do let me the almond joy in mounds. No almond coconut. <laughs> oh, we can't be friends, Greg. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is it. This might be the last time I'm on the podcast, I guess. <laughs> Ohio Health Heidi, what do you like to find in your trick-or-treat bag? I got to go with the Reese's, but it has to be the holiday one. So the pumpkin one, and even better if it's frozen. Oh, the bigger pumpkin one. I do agree. Reese's peanut. I think I just like candy. I think that's my, but yeah, those <laughs> peanut butter cups are money. Yeah, I'm going to double down on Reese's peanut, cup, peanut butter cups as well. So, no, but anything chocolate, no coconut, no, no fruit. No, sorry, Heidi Larson. Coconut. I'll, I'll save all the red delicious apples I get tonight for you and I'll send them over to Minnesota. So. Sounds good. I'll take them. Anybody have any fun costumes planned for, for tonight? We are doing family Star Wars. Nice. So what are you going to be? Um, I'm taking the easy way out and just do, being a basic Jedi. I admittedly am not a Star Wars expert. It's just the rest of the family. <laughs> no, no twin buns in the hair or anything like that, or triple buns. I'm trying not to, trying to avoid it. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a specific colored lightsaber you're going to carry? Um, whatever the extra one is out of my son's closet. <laughs> Hi, you Larson, Rob. You guys have anything planned for costumes tonight? No, uh, you know, I, I had the, I threw this idea up to my kids about doing the real scary tunnel and just just freaking kids out. Um, and he's like, I don't like that because then all the little kids get scared. So I, so I've backed off that. But I, I was planning a nice little, you know, scary tunnel, and my daughter's gonna be a mannequin and scare people as they went by, that type of thing. But we decided not to pull the trigger. So maybe next year. Yeah. So um, we live in a condo, and so there's some kids in there, and they always dress up so cute. So I think I'm gonna dress up, but not anything too fancy. I'm kind of gonna go with the 60s um, theme, maybe look like someone from um, Scooby-Doo or something like that. So um, gonna have a little fun, hopefully um, with the kids in the condo and, and not scare anybody, just um, be more of a smiling face for them and handing out candy. Greg, what about you? No, no costume for me this year, but I tell you what I love to do every year for Halloween is carve jack-o'-lanterns. I'm not going to tell you what mine is this year, but I'll make sure we get a uh, picture of it in the, in the next newsletter that we put out. So stay tuned for 
what I think is a pretty cool jack-o'-lantern. So right. we'll see if he can compete against Chelsea Violet. She does a pretty good job, her and Chris. She does. Yeah. All right. Her her uh, her jack lanterns are, are only rivaled by their uh, Easter eggs that they die each spring. So. True. All right, guys. Thanks again for taking time to talk about a really scary topic. Um, Heidi from Ohio Health, really appreciate you joining us today. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. And Heidi Larson, thank you as well. Always a pleasure. Yes. All right, everyone. That's it for uh, for this episode. Uh, look to uh, have you guys listen in uh, on our next one. Take care. Thanks all for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>